Oh, shoot. Kyone, can I borrow your pen? Yeah, sure. His name is Danny. Whose name is Danny? My pen. He's lying over there next to my coffee mug. Nadia. Nadia? Not so loud. She's resting. Your coffee mug is resting? Well, yeah. This is kind of downtime for Nadia. She's been working all morning. Anyway, feel free to borrow Brenda while you're using Danny. Brenda is... Brenda is my desk. Kate, you're sitting on Jack. I'm guessing Jack is your chair. You're supposed to sit on chairs. That's what they're for. Yeah, but not without being introduced. Jack, this is Greg. He's going to be sitting on you while he uses Danny on Brenda. Kion, you realize naming all these things is a little out of the ordinary. Hey, Sam and Mary. How's it going, guys? Ugh. Who are you talking to now? Oh, when you did those air quotes, that's Sam and Mary. I made those air quotes with my fingers. How can you name them? What if I wanted to call them Evelyn and Edward? That doesn't even make any sense. Why would you want to give them the same name as your windshield wipers? That's confusing. No, you're the one making things way more complicated than they need to be. We cannot go through life introducing ourselves to fence posts. You met Alan? Isn't he great? Today on the show, what happens when we name non-human animals and objects? And now he once owned an egg named Orin. Colin McEnroe. That was just so I could go, Orin, hatch! Uh, all right, that's a bad joke. I actually did know a woman uh, who had a car. This is when I was in college. She had a car, not a very, not a particularly good car, not a particularly desirable car, and its name was Flattery because Flattery will get you nowhere. Um, and we're going to be talking today about the naming of things, the naming of animals, uh, what happens when you uh, name research animals, uh, how people name inanimate objects. Uh, we're guessing that you also may have stories to tell us about that. Um, you know, this is sort of a very fundamental and very primal kind of thing. I mean, it's. If you think of Genesis, then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, well, you know, you know what happens after that. But anyway, you, there's Adam naming stuff. Now, he's really kind of naming stuff probably by the names that we use categorically to describe them. But you see all the power and sense of dominion that's implied there when you name something. Lots of other things go, go on when you name stuff. We've got great guests for you today, uh, guests that we've worked with uh, before and that we, we sort of like them so much we would do kind of any show they wanted to. So uh, Michael Arard is here with us. He's a writer, author, and founder of schwafire.com, a digital, bu- digital publication for long-form language journalism. He's recently researched and written about names and naming by rock musicians, bartenders, high schoolers, Maine lobstermen, and scientists. In just uh, a few minutes, you'll hear a very familiar voice, Maria Konnikova, a writer and journalist. She's been with us a lot. She writes a weekly column on science and psychology for The New Yorker and is the author most recently of Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, she also has a book coming out about con men pretty soon. Anyway, she's not here yet. Also, we're going to meet for the first time Cindy Buckmaster. She's a professor of molecular biology at Baylor, uh, but more significantly, she's president of the American Association for Laboratory Animal Science. One of the areas that Michael will be getting us into is what happens when animal uh, subjects in, in laboratory experiments and laboratory environments get names, which it turns out, particularly more recently, they do a lot. Anyway, Michael Arard, you're going to kick us all off uh, here, so... Um, 
Let's pick something. Right, right on. <laughs> let's sure. pick, so let's pick one of the things that you've written about recently is how fishermen name lobster boats uh, or how lobstermen name lobster boats uh, yeah. or something. Uh, anyway, so and, and the, the assumption that we have, if we have one, is that they're all named the Marie Celeste or something. They're named after women. They're named after their wives, their girlfriends, their, somebody they left behind, the woman that they want to imagine waiting for them on shore. So is that what they actually do? So the naming traditions that people have and the way that they reflect on them tells you a lot about sort of what's going on in that particular subculture. And I had a friend say, hey, you got to – because I live in, in Maine, I guess it's it's worth saying. And I had a friend say, hey, what about lobster boats? How do those get named? And when you go around and ask people what makes a good lobster boat name, you hear almost universally that it should be named after a woman, a wife, a mother, a daughter – uh, or something like that. But um, I decided to to test that, and I looked at lists of several hundred, in one case 1,300 names, and categorized them. And while names f- uh, of, of women uh, are the largest category of boat names, it's no by no means the majority. It's only about 40 to 45 percent. So people are giving their also giving their boats uh, kind of these – uh, what someone called the Down East Dukes of Hazard type names like uh, Rattlesnake and the Rusticator, um, you know, bad boy names, a lot of nautical names, some puns, financial puns, uh, things like that. So you say that the names tell us a lot about the subculture. So I would be looking at that subculture and thinking, well, for example, I wonder if there's an increase in those kinds of macho, you know, Dukes of Hazard on the water type names. I mean, I wonder what that would mean. And if, in fact, this represents any kind of departure from a more standard, I don't know whether they always did stuff like this or whether they're doing it more. If they're doing it more, you kind of wonder, well, Lobstering is kind of an imperiled in- industry, you know. Sure, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. there's a braggadocio, the sort of death word is thy sting. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things going on. One is that the population of uh, lobster fishermen is getting older, right? So those guys have had a lot of boats over their career. They've named they named a boat after their wife and after their mother, mother and after their granddaughters. Uh, so they've kind of paid their uh, dues to the tradition, as it were. And now they're sort of searching for other names. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that uh, over the last couple of decades, the number of people who aren't from traditional lobstering families have started to get into lobstering uh, when other parts of the economy change. And they, when they show up and buy boats and name the boats, they don't have the same sense of tradition uh, uh, and belonging that the other guys do. So they just, you know, they name name boats after uh, professional wrestlers, wrestling moves, rock songs, things like that. So, that, I mean, and that does strike me as kind of ahistorical, right? It's kind of like we're going to break with tradition. It's kind of like writing your own wedding vows. I mean, you're going to make a whole bunch of individual decisions that are more kind of more about you than the tradition you're part of. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I talked to some of the traditional guys and they looked at the names and they just kind of seemed like they just kind of shrug and it's like well you know ultimately it's whether or not the coast guard knows where you are mm-hmm. <laughs> uh no matter what your boat's named well so um th- so that brings up a point i mean uh you, you name a boat because the boat's got to have a name uh 
Um, but not everything has to have a name. Most other things, most other things, most other inanimate objects don't have to have names. But we name them anyway. I mean, I, I, I assume that the next most frequently named inanimate object really is a car. I know lots of people uh, whose cars have names. But wh- what's our impulse in doing that? I mean, why give I, – I don't think people give – I don't think most people's refrigerator has a name, but there probably is somebody with a refrigerator with a name. But why do we? Why would we give names to inanimate objects that don't have to be located by the Coast Guard? So, in it turns out that I come from a family that names. You know, one of the families that just kind of reflexively gives names to things. So, my parents always named their cars. Uh, most notably, named uh, the Christmas trees. And I think, you know, part of that was about having an easy way to refer to it. You know, if there's three cars in the driveway, you got I'm going to take I'm going to take Susie out to the supermarket. So that makes that easier. Um, And then there's also the way in which you're by naming you're you're building a society. You're building some social connections. You're saying uh, for the month of December, our family includes this Christmas tree, and it's going to be here for a short period of time during this special season, uh, and then it'll go. And I think it's naming the tree was a, a, a way to recognize that uh, that special bond. Um, uh, first of all, I want to say that if you're out there, we're live here in the afternoon, uh, and uh, if you ever named an inanimate object, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you named the object and why. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. If you're too embarrassed to have your voice on the air talking about what you did name your toaster, you may tweet us at WNPR Colin, at WNPR Colin again, uh, Greg Hill, which is his real name, is our tweet master, and he's watching for you. So, <clears throat> uh, Michael Arard, I would be remiss if I did not ask you what some of your Christmas trees' names were. Oh gosh, I can't even. I can't remember. Come um, on, I you know. remember uh, some of them. Well, did they have I names th- like Betsy, or did they have names like Oh Ta- Tannenbaum? I mean, did they have names like just sort of people? Did, you know, people's names. And that's an interesting question about names in general. You know, what is an appropriate word to use? What's the appropriate label to use if you're going to use it as a name? So this last year, uh, asked the the five-year-old who lives in my house, my son, what should we name the tree? And he wanted to name it architect, which (laughs) I wouldn't think was, you know, it's not a very name-like name, but uh, architect it became. And it's surprising how if you use a word over and over uh, enough to to refer to something, it becomes a functional name. So that was architect. Uh, In my childhood, they they were kind of slightly... Silly names, but you know, not not like sort of along the lines of Herkimer uh, or not Schnickelfritz, uh, but kind of that sort of thing. Like not a name that you would give a pet exactly, but certainly not a name that you would give a person who you had to deal with <laughs> Herkifer for is a that, long time. Well, Herkifer is actually not a bad name for a Christmas tree because I mean sure. it's a fir yeah. tree, and I mean I, I assume yeah. it's F I R Herkifer. <laughs> Right there, you go. I don't yeah. know. Why, I don't. I mean, I don't know why I just made myself a judge of what's a good name for a Christmas tree. But I, I suddenly felt like as though I could. Anyway, um, joining us now is uh, the aforementioned. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the aforementioned Maria Konnikova. Welcome to our show uh, for uh, another visit. We're always happy when you do visit. Thanks so much for having me. 
So Maria Konnikova, uh, we're talking with uh, Michael Erard as well. Um, one of the things that you, you've written about names and, and the uh, implications that names have uh, for people, but uh, we're right now we're kind of also talking about the naming things, naming animals. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you've said is that when you name something, it's an act of control. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think that we really don't like when something is ambiguous, when we're uncertain what it is or what it means. And when we put a name on it, we're in some sense labeling it. We're saying, okay, I know what this thing is. It's like when we try to teach infants how to talk, right? We we really simplify things. We say, Apple, mom, dad, dog, everything needs to have a label to help the infant understand the world. But we never really, we, we don't let go of that need to label everything. And so when, you know, when you meet someone and they have a name, good. It's something familiar, especially if it's something that you recognize and that you can say. But when there's something that doesn't have a name, like say a state, it doesn't even have to be a person, it makes us really, really uncomfortable because we don't control it. You can't call something without a name. If I can't say, hey, you, you're not going to turn around. Um, actually, uh, Vicki Hearn, who's no longer with us now, but who wrote, this, wrote several amazing uh, books about philosophy, language, and animals. She was both um, uh, an academic, uh, was at Yale for a while, but also an animal trainer, a professional animal trainer. And one of the things she said was that um, that you can't have what she called a moral relationship with an animal until the animal has a name and the animal knows the name and the animal inhabits the name, which is to say that you can't ask an animal to do something um, without knowing its name. And the animal won't really understand the full extent of your question or your demand if you if the animal doesn't know your name. I mean, I think that sort of goes to your point, right? Absolutely. You know, when you said that, it made me think of um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, how Audrey Hepburn doesn't want to name her cat, so she just calls it cat, because naming it um, means some sort of a deeper relationship and some sort of responsibility. So you can control it. You can say, you know, here you know, whatever your cat's name is, come here. Um, I, I want to use one of Michael's beautiful made-up names, but I've, I've forgotten them. <laughs> um, and, um, and suddenly the cat is there. But if you don't name it, then you can't control it, but you also don't have any responsibility. You kind of abdicate your, as you say, moral relationship. You know, Maria, for many, many years I've been trying to more fully understand the profound message uh, contained in, in the America song, Horse With No Name. And I think you've just helped me. Uh, because obviously, if you go through the desert on a horse with no name, you're es- essentially abandoning, abandoning control to the horse. Um, you don't even know how to talk to the horse. The horse has no name. So uh, the horse is, is in control and you're not. Uh, this helps me so much with that song. I mean, I, it's been, a, been a, a quest of mine to understand it. We've got a call here from Russell in Denver. I want to hear what Michael Arard makes of this particular act of naming. Hi, Russell. Hello. You're on the air. Oh, excellent. A uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, so I've received a kidney transplant from a uh, cadaver, and I have anthropomorphically named my kidney Frank. Frank? Yeah, uh, how did, obviously, well, the first thing we want to know, uh, Michael and Maria and I, is how did you choose that name? Uh, I'm not sure. I just picked it <laughs> at, at random, really. It just I, came uh, to you. It just came to you, and it seemed right. Yeah. The only thing I knew about the donor was that he was an, an older male from Florida, and I said, okay, Frank. 
Uh, Michael, I feel like this could be my uh, first freelance piece for schwafire.com, <laughs> what people call their organs. But do you have any particular questions for Russell? I mean, you ask people a lot of questions about how they name things. Uh, anything you want to know uh, about the kidney named Frank? One thing that I'd want to know from the caller's doctor is just how widespread this is. And is this a part of the psychology of of uh, transplantation, you know, a, a way of um, neutralizing some of the charge, you know, that one's new body part uh, has come from somewhere else? And well, I also, this could this could speak to the Konnikova theory, um, the well-known Konnikova theory, uh, which is, Maria, that, I mean, here he's got this this new organ that's inside his body mm-hmm. that's, and, and uh, who knows, it might have a mind of its own and it might have its own agenda. So maybe in naming it Frank, he's kind of saying, welcome to the family, uh, but you actually are my kidney and you better do what I want you to do. That's absolutely right. And I think it goes back to not just control, but the reason we need control, which is comfort, familiarity, um, lack of uncertainty. Because when you get, you know, when you get a new organ, that's a huge thing. Um, And so you want to make it at once kind of your own, but also safe and familiar. And I actually think Frank is a really um, interesting name in that regard, because um, it's not like you named it something really, really out there. Frank is kind of a good, solid name. I think we all have some mental image associated with Frank, but when I think of Frank, I think of you know a very solid, upstanding guy. Um, and that's what you want from your new kidney, right? Do you ever say, Frank, I'm going to have some lemonade now? I mean, do you ever sort of like talk to Frank or let Frank know what, what's happening next? Uh, no, I, I don't have any conversations with, with Frank, but I felt it was important that I and the, the kidney get along rather well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is amazing, and this is terrific, and thank you uh, so much for your call, Russell. Obviously, if you know guys, guys do tend to name one part of their body, uh, but it's not usually their kidney. I was going to ask that question, too, or or say that I was not going to ask that question. Yeah. (laughs) But... You know, um, there's another interesting thing here, and that's about anthropomorphizing the the kidney. There's some really interesting um, work in psychology that we do that basically to everything. Um, There's a study that goes back to the 40s. I believe it was 1944 by Fritz Heider and uh, Marianne Simmel, and it showed people just a video of squares and triangles and circles, and people spontaneously made up, you know, said that they were living objects and gave them names um, and right away started calling them things with a capital letter to explain what was going on in the screen when really the only thing that was happening was these objects flying around. And this is one of the most famous studies in psychology because I think it gets to that really fundamental need that we have um, to name and to understand to make sense of it. Um, I may be conflating two different studies. Was that the one in which there were sort of two kinds of names, too? There's one with kind of softer sounds in it and one with harder sounds in it? You're actually, you are conflating two different studies, but that is um, another one that's quite related um, where, where, we, where we actually do, there are certain words that sound like certain things, like booba, you think, is going to be something that's kind of circular, right, globby. Um, whereas if I, if I called something, um, I don't know, something, a very hard name, like Niddletuk, that seems like it's not going to be a circle, right? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I just I wanted what you just said to become my ringtone. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look, let's, let's talk about the most, I would, I would argue 
the most famous named thing right now in a lot of people's lives. Um, it's been fictionalized in the movie Her. Let's We can hear the clip from Her. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi. I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? You're too funny. Okay, good. I'm funny. All right, so uh, that's from the movie Her. But Michael Erard, in, in fact, people, a lot of people have in their pockets right now um, an iPhone. On the iPhone, there's a voice. The voice is named Siri. I, I did a little checking before the show today, and I'm, I may get corrected here uh, by callers or whatever, 860-275-7266. But as far as I can t- tell, you can't hack that name. Siri is Siri. Um, and it may go to mm. Maria's initial point about control. You know, it's kind of like who's going to decide what Siri's name is? Well, guess what? Not you. Uh, you're not, a, I mean, <laughs> Apple and therefore implicitly Siri are bigger than you are. Um, but I don't know. What's your, what's your thought? What are your thoughts, Michael, as somebody who thinks a lot about names for inanimate objects? What, what about Siri? What about Siri? What about the, the getting the name given to us or yeah. assigned to the thing? Um, you know, I, I think that probably the computer companies are missing out on an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, give us a, a service that we would actually quite enjoy, which is the ability to name these things for ourselves. Uh, I don't know that much or I can't recall about the origins of the name Siri. So I imagine that it's related to some kind of phonetic quality of the name so that you can, uh, I mean, you can call Siri up, right, by saying Siri that might not work so much in some environments uh, with some other names. So probably the fact that all the phones <clears throat> or all the those operating systems are, are, are named Siri uh, has something to do with that particular functionality. But, I mean, I would like to name my – I mean, we, I give my uh, – you know, my hard drive has a name. I don't refer to it as that, but I think that it's very easy to – it's just a click and a couple letters. See, Michael, right, you to say give it the, a name. Michael, you say these things, then you don't tell us the name. And now, Maria, Maria, and I would like to know what your hard drive is named. What is the hard drive? The hard drive is named uh, Castaneda, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's so what complicated. What does that say about me? Yeah. Th- what does it say about your computer? Your oh, computer, wonderful. your computer functions in a very magical way for you, apparently, and <laughs> perhaps <laughs> even in, in a hallucinatory way. Uh, um. For you. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah. No, I was going to say, Michael, um, as far as I know, um, and I might be mistaken, Siri was named because Siri means secret in Swahili. Um, and this project was initially a secret. Um, and so they decided that they were going to, to name it secret, which I think is actually kind of appropriate because everyone, we wonder why it's the name. And it, I think it's a very interesting kind of paradox of needing to name it and yet naming it something like secret, which is something that you can't say. Well, and, and Mar- Maria, I, I did find it interesting, you know, in a world where everything, I just sound like, sound like a movie trailer, but in, in a world where everything can be customized, everything can be hacked, right? That's in 2015, that's the world we're living in, that, that, that everybody gets to kind of create their own playland uh, and, and, and hack everything and name everything. That, uh, as far as I can tell, Siri is kind of immutable. You just, you cannot go into your phone and, and change it to Mortimer. Um, and, and 
I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, it is for, as Michael suggests, a perfectly rational reason, which is that maybe it has to sound a certain way in order to, to get the attention of the microchip it's talking to or something. Yeah, that's that's absolutely plausible, and I don't know enough about the mechanics to know that. But, yeah, I, I can't rename Siri Samantha, although although I can ask Siri to call me Samantha. And that's, I think, a very interesting function. Um, I wonder what we think about the fact that a lot of people have asked Siri to call them something other than their actual name, be it you know some adjective, something that's funny and that makes them laugh all the time, just some other random name that's not theirs. There, you hear so many stories about people um, changing their name for Siri. Um, in fact, uh, one thing I learned also researching this show is if you do that, uh, let's say that you decide that you would like Siri to address you as the master. Um, or let's decide, let's say that your younger brother picks up your iPhone and alters it so that Siri calls you butthead. Um, <laughs> in either case, what will happen is that Siri will change your name in your contacts app to butthead or the master, as the case may be. And that should you be involved in some a- act of sharing your, your contacts app or file through an iPad touch thing or something like that with somebody else, they will see that at least at some level, <laughs> your nickname for yourself, it'll say your name and then your nickname, that you either refer to yourself as the master or butthead or Samantha or whatever it is. So there are risks. You know, we live in a dangerous world. Um, we, we need to sort of uh, switch uh, over to the subject of animals and research animals, uh, another thing that Michael has written about. Uh, so we'll take a break. We'll get ready. I think Cindy will be joining us then, or Siri, or Samantha, or Butthead, or the master. Someone else will be talking. Strangers can be when we walk in the park. Strangers still when the cat starts to bark. Yeah, I got a dog, and my dog's name is Cat. Bet you never heard a thing half as crazy as that. But not only that, I got a cat. And cat's name is Dog, like dog's name is Cat. Have you ever named an inanimate object before? My first car, I named it Yoda. Why Yoda? Huge Star Wars fan. I just like Yoda. No, no particular reason, but besides just being a Star Wars fan. Stuffed animal. Um, Roscoe. <laughs> what was Roscoe? A uh, polar bear. I had a doll, too, named Dee Dee, but it was like it was sort of like just this green doll. It wasn't really an animal. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I have named the voice on our GPS system. My dad and I refer to her as Audrey. Why Audrey? It's just a name that came out, and we've been... Every time that they, usually it's when we're lost and they're trying to give us additional directions, we usually just start to uh, call her Audrey and uh, just kind of a pet name for it, I guess. Well, we're going to kind of move from inanimate objects to animate objects. Um, Although I like the idea of a name, a car named Yoda. Mmm, gas we need. Uh, But... um, we're going to move to animate objects. So there's an old joke. Uh, a grasshopper walks into a bar, and the bartender says, did you know that there's a drink named after you? And the grasshopper says, really? There's a drink named Fred. Now, uh, that's not a very funny joke, but to the extent that it's funny, uh, it turns on the notion that, in fact, grasshopper is not the grasshopper's name. The grasshopper's name is Fred. Um, and it's a mistake to suppose that the grasshopper can be addressed generically. Um, and so, But that's kind of what we're about to talk about now, is, in fact, what happens when you don't address animals uh, generically. This is something uh, that Michael Erard has uh, written about. He's one of our guests today. Uh, he is the writer, author, and founder of schwafire.com. Uh, Maria Konnikova has been writing and talking a bit about uh, anthropomorphism. Uh, she's with us right now. She's a writer on psychology and science for The New Yorker and the author of Mastermind, How to Think Like uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, 
you know, she has a book that we are eagerly looking forward to coming out soon about con men. Uh, so uh, also joining us now is Cindy Buckmaster, as I mentioned before, Associate Professor of Molecular Biology at Baylor College and President of the American Association for Laboratory Animal Science. She is a prominent figure in an article that Michael wrote about the naming of lab animals. And so, um, Cindy Buckmaster, I think I will start with you and just sort of say, uh, reading Michael's article and seeing what you said there, it seems as though there's been a kind of a movement uh, that to have animals who are not named monkey T A six six one four, but uh, uh, but lab animals that that have names. So how how pervasive is that movement? So um, I'm not so sure it is a movement. Okay. Um, I think it's always been happening, um, but it wasn't considered acceptable. And I think one of the other um, points in that article, actually, uh, when Michael interviewed um, uh, one of the gentlemen, uh, Mark. He mentioned that he had, way back when, named one of his animals Speedy. It was a cat because the cat was Speedy. And what he, what he met was, what he was met with was a lot of resistance to the concept of naming. So I'm not sure it's a movement. I think it's always been happening. The movement is really in the acceptance of the naming practice and, and the potential importance of it with respect to um, the outcome in, in scientific studies. So, Michael, as you were working on that article, you explored both the upside and the downside. What, what might be the downside of uh, having every rabbit, uh, every rat, uh, every monkey in your lab have a name? So a lot of the naming kind of happens by species. So the, all of the, the primates are named. You know, all of the large social mammals are named. But when you get down to the smaller animals, it's the special individuals that tend to get named. So most mice don't have names or most rats wouldn't have names. Uh, one downside that was discussed by – that was brought up was the potential – for bias in experiments or in uh, particularly where a scientist is looking at an animal's behavior. Um, would you describe uh, the behavior of an animal named Bruno differently than you would, na- than you would describe uh, how an animal named Peaches uh, uh, behaves? And um, no one was able to point to any evidence that that was true which was interesting for a group of scientists, but people certainly held that uh, that belief very close that that names have you know part of the power of names is to make us think uh, in a, in a different way about the the animal that has that name. Yeah, I think in the article the, there was two monkeys named Moose and Peach, and the idea might be you know well I mean Maria I'll ask you about this because this is something you've been writing about and I heard you talking about it on the gist with our friend Mike Pesca um, that uh, that in ways that we're not even really aware of we we take things like this and and we create realities that may not be there right as we look at animals um, without even knowing it we might subconsciously ascribe to a monkey named Moose. Uh, um, qualities very different from those we described to a monkey named Peach. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we project onto animals all the time. And there's lots of evidence where you see, you know, researchers, for instance, who work really, really closely with a certain species um, and who who have names for the species or photographers, for instance, who work in nature. Um, they'll have a way of saying, oh, you know, she was so sad. She was crying. All of this you know, all all of this emotional drama, but we only really have evidence for, well, there was a physiological reaction, and you don't know what she was feeling. You couldn't ask her, and her behavior didn't actually change at all, or maybe her behavior was totally 
not appropriate for the emotion that you think she's feeling, but we think that they're more like us the moment that we name them. And so we start viewing them differently. So I would not be at all surprised. There's not any work on this that I'm aware of, but I would not be at all surprised if different names also make you project different emotions. You know, Bruno seems like he'd be a little bit more stoic. He probably isn't going to get as emotional as Peaches. Well, we do have, we do know that there's research, and you've cited some of it, Maria, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that this is the case with human beings, right? that um, what your name is, if you're a human being, yes. does completely affect. Absolutely. There's huge, um, there's so much work about the power that our name has on how other people see us um, and how we end up performing because you get something that I actually think might happen in lab animals as well that are named, which is um, which experimentals called demand characteristics, which means that if we expect you to act in a certain way, that's how we'll see you acting and how you might actually end up acting in reality. So there's really interesting work when you have names, for instance, that confer a certain social status or a certain ethnicity. Um, People will see you very differently, and you might end up doing better or worse in school. You might be friendlier. You might be shyer. It goes quite deep. Um, Cindy Buckmaster, there, uh, there's a panoply of questions uh, that come up uh, when we start to discuss this. I mean, Can I address that? Yeah, go ahead. First? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I, I'd like to uh, both agree and disagree um, with Maria. So it is, the, I mean, so I, I've worked with monkeys myself personally, and we have several, several animals here. I, I direct the program of, of animal care here. So we have a lot of animals, um, and, and they all have names. Um, one of the reasons rodents don't have names necessarily, only the special ones do, is just the sheer volume of them. I mean, 98% of the animals in research today are rodents, so it would be hard to have, you know, 50,000 names <laughs> for all these animals. But what I want to, what I want to point out uh, regarding what Maria said that I do agree with is, um, <clears throat> is naming animals for characteristics. But I come at it from the other the other direction, and so we do tend to name our animals in the same way we name our, our pets at home based on their sort of uh, features, right? How are they socially? How are, how do they behave emotionally? How do they interact with us? Um, are they gentle? Are they rough? Right. So our animals get names based on sort of who they are and how we feel about who they are, but that does not translate and should not translate into um, data. And, and I mean, that's, that's a matter of study design. So for example, I had many, many monkeys with all kinds of names and they were cute. Einstein, right? Which turns out that Einstein on study was not smarter than Lemon, for example, or some of the other animals. That was just his name because he did something cute one day that I thought was clever and that was his name. And so if you, if your study is designed appropriately and you're actually measuring what you're supposed to measure, then you won't have any of this impact. And in fact, you don't see any correlation at all. And I can say uh, personally that one of the things we measured for when our animals uh, chose one item over another, because we did behavioral work, so we spent a lot of time with these animals, um, was reaction time. And there was there was no difference in reaction time um, when you when you compared the experimental and the control animals. And it was pretty random, really. Um, and it was just a matter of whatever it was they were sensing or experiencing in their their particular whole state at the time. So I, I think I think people are going too far with that. I mean, in, in our job, and so again, I think one thing I want to clarify also is that what I do is, so I'm not a researcher, and, and most folks don't understand this, but there's an entire profession of people whose job it is 
uh, to care for these animals specifically, their husbandry needs, their veterinary needs, their behavioral needs, their social needs, and yes, their emotional needs. All of those things have to be addressed, and there's a whole profession of folks with specialized training who really love these animals who do that. They don't live with researchers. Um, researchers collect data, and what we try to do is create the absolute best steady-state model we can. And, and to begin with, animals are not a perfect study, uh, perfect models rather for human disease. Um, so you, you want to do everything you can to reduce variability and um, and getting to know these animals and bonding with them and ascribing names, names to them causes people to be a lot more attentive to their, their subtle changes. And in our line of work, that's really, really important. Um, so I don't see the direct connection there. I think really the if you ask me, the resistance to naming, in my opinion, and I think Maria will – she'll have a lot to say about this and she'll know more about it than I do, but this is just my, my strong gut feeling um, and opinion. And I think it's – this resistance to naming is really related more to our – unwillingness to experience our own emotional state more than anything else um, as it relates to the work that's being done with these animals for our benefit. That's a, we want to divorce ourselves from all emotion because we don't like it. Right. So when you, you're saying that, I mean, uh, and you and Michael in this article, I think you cite this, the, the thing you said before that there was a researcher years ago who had a cat named Speedy because it seemed to fit the way Speedy was responding in a lot of these experiments. Uh, but uh, older scientists were kind of looking down on that. You know, we don't name animals. We, 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 it's not scientific. It's not good. We don't do it. And so Maria, um, Sydney's making an interesting point, which is that uh, if there's some kind of prejudice or bias uh, against naming animals among scientists, it might be more because of what it would do, will do to the scientists than what it will do to the animal. Oh, absolutely. I think I, I think I agree with Cindy's point completely. And I also agree with um, with her point about experimental design. And I want to actually clarify a little bit what I meant, because we've found, you know, over over the years in psychology, um, that there can be problems in the data with humans when you have emotional connections, because you end up almost asking asking them to perform in a certain way and they do because they respond to you and that's what I, that's what I was um, that's what I was th- talking about when I said when we name animals we might end up closer to them and so that might bias the result and so with humans you have to really protect against that by having double blind studies by having people who don't actually know the subject at all um, by having people who don't know what you're looking for what the what the experiment is about and I think that in animals you don't often think that way. Some of the most famous research animals, um, you know, the, the, the person who knows them the best is the person who does all of the studies. I think when you name them and when you think of them um, so individual and you have that emotional connection with them, then you have to have some of the same safeguards that you have with humans so that you don't end up having them act in certain ways because they know that, you know, on a certain level that you're expecting it. But, you know, Sydney, back to your point, too. I mean, I guess I, I find myself in reading about all this stuff wondering what happens in situations where you have signing primates who not only know their names but can express things about themselves. So you have signing primates. I, I, I assume it's not far-fetched uh, that a signing chimpanzee could say Washoe doesn't want the eye drops today. No eye drops for Washoe. Um, <laughs> So you have an animal expressing volition and a lack of interest in cooperating with a particular experiment. Is, is there any provision ever made for that? Well, I have no experience with that directly. Um, I've not worked with apes. I've only worked with monkeys. Um, and 
you know, I think the the type of work that Washoe, Washoe signed because that was that was part of the study mm-hmm. <laughs> was to teach this animal um, how to express herself and to see whether or not she could, and and then to draw correlations between the the brain structures that support language in in us as humans and and other apes. So, um, I, I can't really answer that question for you, but. Um, I mean, again, I think it comes down to what it is you're measuring. I mean, in that case, that was probably great finding. <laughs> so mm. if she's actually mm. expressing volition, then that was probably a home run for them. Um, um, <laughs> Michael Arad, one thing that you sort of looked into was what's the history of this? I mean, have have researchers always named animals? So what's what's the story of this? I think. Oh, I was going to ask. I was going to let Michael do that one. Uh, oh, sorry, just, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, but if Cindy, if Cindy knows something about the history, and you didn't tell me, Cindy, when we when we talked, when I interviewed you, then then we should. No, no, uh, I guess it, it, it depends on what you mean back. by history. So why don't uh, okay. you go first? Okay. Well, I was interested in the the history of a specific naming practice at an NIH uh, facility, a field colony of rhesus monkeys, where all of the mothers have a name that starts with a different letter of the alphabet and all of the offspring will have names that start with the same letter. And I wanted to know, did they just come up with that there or does that have a history? And it turns out that um, it goes back a little ways. That was the uh, the naming scheme that Jane Goodall used in her uh, field research uh, of chimpanzees in Africa in the late uh, 50s and early 60s. And She's often credited as being the pioneer of this, when in fact there is an older field researcher, uh, the um, man who's often taken to consider to be the the father of Japanese primatology, who in before World War II had been researching wild horses in Mongolia and named them then. And then uh, after the war was working with uh, wild Japanese monkeys and sort of decided that he needed to name the individuals in order to be able to identify them and to talk with other researchers easily about the individuals that they were talking about. So they came up with another scheme. So that's right after the war, late 40s. Uh, and that's as far back as I was able to trace it. There were research animals uh, before that, you know, in the th- in the 30s and even and even earlier, um, animals in captivity that were named, and I think that some of that might have to do with the fact that probably a lot of those animals had come from zoos or circuses where naming of animals is much more prevalent, and so the the scientists uh, would just continue to use the names that the that the animals already had. All right, we have to take a little break here. When we come back, there'll be more of this conversation. Uh, Maria Konnikova and Michael Arard are staying with us. And thank you so much, Cindy Buckmaster from Baylor College and the American Association of Laboratory Animal Science. They call me grasshopper walks into a bar. The bartender says, you know there's a drink named after you? The grasshopper says, shut up and make me a Shirley Temple. The bartender crushes the grasshopper with a paperweight named Alice. That's not the way this joke is supposed to go, is it? 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Kelsey Bissell and Julia Pistel. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by a horse with no name. For show pages, articles, and an explanation from the Faith Middleton Show staff about why they're changing the show's name to McHale's Navy, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose ponders what should happen when a teacher reads the most sexually explicit poem ever in class. And now, back to Colin. You know, another thing we're going to be pondering tomorrow on The Nose is sort of the question of um, what happens when you do something like that or do something else that's really, really wrong or objectionable. Um, You know, what's your path back to acceptance by the rest of humanity? What exactly do you have to do by way of apology or contrition? This is coming up in a lot of news stories lately, probably most especially the um, Oklahoma uh, frat guys uh, on the bus singing the terrible song. Um, you know, what, what, what will we accept um, to uh, end somebody's estrangement from our tribal campfire? Anyway, that's tomorrow. Right now we're talking about names and how things get named. And so let's go to Nat in uh, Middletown. Hi, Nat. You're on the air. Hi, um, I just had a question about um, the what happens when we name something ourselves, such as a country or a um, or an organization or a business. What what type of power can be given or taken from that? And um, I wanted to ask specifically about um, something like like ISIS, where um, they basically chose their name themselves. And they're deriving a lot of power from that and how maybe we can counteract that uh, by choosing to say, instead of calling them the Islamic State in Lebanon, call them something like the false Islamic State in Lebanon, which would acronym to something like fizzle. And it would be kind of funny <laughs> and take a lot of power away. Actually, there's somebody from the State Department calling right now. They want to talk to you. Uh, they may have a job for you. That's exactly the way they, they're thinking about this these days. In fact, we did a whole show about that. But um, thanks for that. I mean, uh, M- Michael, the, the larger question that he's asking goes right to some of the groups that you've looked at. You looked at how, for example, rock bands name themselves uh, or how bartenders try to uh, name cocktails that they feel that they've invented. And what, 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 his question's a good one. Sort of, you have a lot of power at the moment that you're naming yourself, if you're, say, a rock band. What, what did you find people doing with that power? Yeah, or, or does everyone have to use the name that you decide for yourself, right, that mm-hmm. you're going to call your, your rock band? Uh, you know, if they think that you're terrible, are they going to – I mean, and that's where nicknames come from, right? Um, in, in the rock band uh, realm, what's really interesting is that, you know, the, there are so many bands and so many band names – but the real power of the name seems to 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 lie in the backstory of where the name comes from. So if anybody wants to get into business out there, you could probably uh, write good back name backstories uh, to go along with names. Um, bands would probably appreciate that. And then there's the issue with craft cocktails where you have bartenders all over making up drinks and potentially duplicating uh, someone else's recipe. Recipes can't be copyrighted, though the names sometimes can be, but they're, or, or the names can be legal, legally protected, but uh, bartenders tend not to do that because it's just considered not cool. But in and among the culture of bartenders, there is kind of exactly what the the caller was referring to, this... Um, uh, not calling 
a your uh, someone else's recipe with the name that you made up so as to not be perceived as stepping on someone else's uh, mixological toes. Well, it seems to me, I mean, Maria Konnikova, many people have a moment in their lives where they get to name something, or, I mean, as an author, uh, you have the the struggle, uh, if it is a struggle, to come up with a name for an individual book. But I think in particular, you know, when he's talking about rock bands, you see the the paralysis that can come with over-choice, with with unlimited choice, for something that's a pretty fateful decision. And, uh, you know, this has been mapped out in movies and TV and stuff like that. I think in the the movie The Commitments, two of the guys are in a band called And 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 uh which sounds like a very sort of 80s kind of name for a band uh and uh, on the tv show nashville recently three of the characters were uh just going crazy uh, trying to come up with a name for a band and what they wind up doing is just sort of saying words you know unconnected words in in unpredictable sequences seeing if something uh will c- uh, click but maria i I'm, I'm asking you a question that has probably nothing to do with any of the research that you've ever studied about anything but it does seem there's something paralyzing in a situation like that about having unlimited choice. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much work about um, the, the what's called the paradox of choice, where you when you have too much, you just don't want to choose anything. Um, so, for instance, you're much more likely to buy a jam when there's only three varieties than you are if there are 33 varieties. And I think that a lot of that comes into names, but it's even more of an existential angst, so to speak, because we really think that names confer power. And so we want to be really careful and make sure it's the right one. Well, you know, what happens if I give our band the wrong name and then people will see us differently and our music isn't going to do that well. So it really, it's like naming a child, um, except you're naming a child that a lot of people will listen to, you hope. And so you want that child to have the most popular name, but also one that captures the essence of what you want it to be like. And I'd like to say that it doesn't really matter and that you can just relax and name it any old thing, but there's work to show that that's not exactly true. So let me just for one second contribute to potential band leaders' angst by saying that, yes, names can make a difference. And we're going to have to end it there, uh, but let's call the baby Quicksilver Messenger Service, obviously. Uh, But we're out of time. Thank you so much, Maria Konnikova, Michael Erard. So great to have both of you, two of our favorite thinkers, uh, on uh, the same show together. Thanks also to Cindy Buckmaster. We'll be back tomorrow with the news. That, of course, was A Horse With No Name by America. And I'd like to introduce you to the end of our show, named Alex.